the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever is on your heart, you need only to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, nothing going on today, so we can get right to questions that have been sent in. Our first one comes from Lewis from our email inbox, uh, and he says this, Hi, Pastor Ron, is it okay for Christians to get breast implants? My wife lost weight and looks really good, but she did lose volume. My wife said she would do it for me. Is that okay? Or is that selfish of a Christian married man? Lewis, there's so many things going uh, on in my brain and in my heart right now. Uh, let me let me answer the question. Generally speaking, yes, it's okay for Christians to get breast implants. Um, it's something that would have to be bathed in prayer. I say often on this program that motive is everything. And so whether it's a woman who is asking the question or a husband asking the question, um, the, the, the answer has to come from the motive of your hearts. Um, there's no prohibition against it. Um, plastic surgery is something that is available, and people take advantage of it. Now, having said that, um, this is something, Lewis, that, that I don't think a husband ought ever to bring up in his home. Um, your wife lost weight. She's getting healthy. Um, that's going to guarantee that she's going to be around for a lot more years. She is, I hope and pray, the love of your life. But the message that we send by saying, you know, you look really good, but the message we send when we say that is one that I can promise you the devil is going to use to torture her with. It's just that simple. Um, I understand there are men that like big, full breasts. But you have promised Jesus that you would love your wife, that you would love her and make her feel beautiful. And I just think this opens an opportunity for the enemy to destroy. And I'm just not sure that it's something that ought to be done. I would be interested in anybody else's thoughts on this, but uh, I, I just think, having said motive is everything, it sounds like, Lewis, you, you're asking her to do this for you rather than for her. Uh, and your job is to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, giving 
himself up for her. Your job is to sacrifice for her benefit. And I think the most important thing here is you being grateful for a wife that wants to be healthy, um, a wife that loves you, uh, one that is willing to do it for you. Uh, I just think that that opens the door to so many possible problems, Lewis, that I would never go down that road. I, I know, I have, having done marriage counseling for uh, 27 years, uh, I know exactly uh, if she agrees to do this for you, I know exactly what the devil's approach is going to be, and it's usually going to wait until after the operation, and he's going to say, you know, your husband didn't like you the way you were. You weren't attractive to your husband the way you were. And our job is to make sure our wives know that they are beautiful. We have eyes only for them. So that's my take on it, Lewis. And uh, I just would be so very, very careful. Uh, If I were you, I would take a long walk with Jesus. And I'd put my heart before him. Completely honest. Lord, I, I, I I would like it if she were bigger. But at least give the Lord an opportunity to tell you, Lewis, this isn't about you. This is you representing me to her. And so I hope that's clear, Lewis. This is really, really dangerous ground. You're to protect your wife from the attacks of the enemy, to insulate her from those things. And instead, it seems to me as though you would be opening up uh, her to these attacks. And I I just see a lot of damage done uh, on the back end of this thing. So I hope that makes sense to you, Lewis. Here's a question from Kaylee from our email inbox. She says, in Mark 10, when the two disciples ask if they can sit at the right and left hand of Jesus, he says that those spots aren't for them who sits at the right and the left hand of Jesus. Kaylee, I just taught this not too long ago on our Sunday uh, Bible studies. Uh, So you can go to uh, uh, calvaryessay.com and get some real detail here because I think this is really, really interesting. I'm going to answer your question, but if you'd like to hear the whole message, uh, just go to um, um, Mark chapter 10. Our, our website's pretty easy to traverse, and you can get all of the circumstances around that. Um, Kaylee, a couple of things. Um, um, we don't know for sure who's sitting at the right hand and the left hand. When they asked him, and actually John... And James, the, the sons of thunder, they sent their mother to ask Jesus. Uh, wasn't exactly a bold request. Um, but the reason they did it, I think, was because they didn't want the other disciples to find out that they were angling for those positions. You have to remember, Kaylee, that they had been arguing about who was going to be the greatest when Jesus left. I mean, Jesus has told them repeatedly that I'm going to die, and their hearts are so selfish, their flesh is so ugly, that all they can think about is, well, he's going to go, am I going to be in charge? And that's exactly what uh, the arguing was all about. Peter, in fact, uh, was especially offended by this conversation, because in Matthew's gospel, he goes to, I think in Matthew, it might be Luke, but but he goes uh, to Jesus and, and asks a question. You know, Jesus would usually walk a little bit ahead of the others, and Peter would walk up, catch up to him, and say, Lord, how many times must I forgive a brother who sinned against me? Seven? And Jesus said, seven. I tell you, 70 times seven, uh, meaning you keep on forgiving that brother. And so Peter seems to have been the most offended uh, by the conversation. Now, when Jesus told John and James, these seats are not mine to give, he's talking about the sovereign plan of God um, for the kingdom of reign, uh, the kingdom reign uh, on earth. Uh, he's just told the disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, John, who was always the closest to Jesus in physicality, John was always running to get close to Jesus. Um, John would naturally say, well, I want to be close to you. And James would have thought, well, me too. So that's why they sent their mother to ask the question. But Jesus is simply saying, look, I don't know who those seats are for. Now, obviously, Jesus knows now. But remember, he veiled his deity when he was here. 
And um, he said, those seats basically have been given by my father in heaven, and you'll find out who has those seats when we get there. Now, let me give you my opinion, Kaylee, and that's all it is because there's no biblical warrant for this. Uh, There's no passage that tells us uh, who precisely is going to be sitting in those seats. I think there's hints. Uh, First, David, I think, will be one of them. Ezekiel uh, chapters 37 through 39. David is referred to as Israel's prince. During the millennium, he's Israel's prince. I think that is a seat uh, for a prince. And and I think uh, David will be uh, in one of those seats. I feel very strongly. My opinion is a strong one. I think an educated opinion. But nonetheless, it is only my opinion. And usually, Kayla, my opinion is no better than anybody else's. Uh, The other one, I believe, is the Apostle Paul. Um, You remember when uh, Judas betrayed Jesus, before the Holy Spirit had fallen, the disciples were together, and Peter, quoting Old Testament scripture, said, "His place has been deserted; may another uh, be lifted to take up his, to take his place." And they drew um, straws for it. Um, they they threw the lot, cast a lot, and um, um, I think the Holy Spirit directed them. They were appealing to God with the right heart. Uh, they were responding to Scripture, which clearly was appropriate for the occasion. And and I believe that God, as he always did, he directed the casting of the lot. And uh, two men were, were chosen as being qualified. And then the lot, of course, fell to Matthias. So I think Matthias will have one of the 12 thrones of Israel. And that means the Apostle Paul. People say, well, they should have waited. Paul is the one. Well, it took years for Paul to get saved. Paul didn't get saved right away. It took years, and they filled the place that was empty then. And um, um, that leaves uh, the Apostle Paul, who I think um, has been used by God to a greater degree than any other human being in the history of the world. Um, That leaves the other place on Jesus' right or left hand to him. So that's what I think. Again, it's just my opinion, Kaylee, but I believe... Um, very strongly in those uh, those answers. Good question. Thank you, and I appreciate that you're going through the Gospels. We ought to be reading the Gospels repeatedly. Here's a question from Sumi. I hope I'm saying your name right, Sumi. Uh, she wants to know, is it possible for someone to divorce and remarry? Uh, Sumi, of course it is. Um, um, biblically speaking, uh, whenever you have a biblical reason, legitimate reason to divorce, you are then free to remarry. So yes, uh, if you uh, are divorced, uh, your your husband cheated, your husband was violent, uh, your husband abandoned you, he left, of course it's possible for you to remarry. Um, Paul says you have to remarry a Christian, certainly. And it's not somebody who says he's a Christian, it's somebody that you've been able to watch their walk and you know that they're a Christian. I always emphasize that, Sumi, because uh, usually when people are lonely, especially, the first thing they think is, well, if he's a Christian, he'll take me to church. I'm going to marry him. And we need to be more careful because you're going to be asked to make a promise to stay married to that man until one or the other of you dies. So, or till Jesus comes back for us. So, yes, it's possible to divorce and remarry. Now, that creates a problem, Sumi, because um, there are prohibitions against remarrying. If you leave your husband and you have no biblical warrant, Paul says that you have to stay, and Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says that you have to remain unmarried forever. Now, that's a difficult pill for people to swallow. And honestly, I know a lot of Christians who just say, well, I just can't be alone. And they'll go ahead and remarry anyway. And and that is, uh, I think, presumptuous. I, I think it, it is being willfully disobedient. I think it demonstrates a refusal to accept the consequences of the choice that you made to divorce without biblical reasons. Now, let me also qualify this, Sumi. If you were divorced before you were saved and you had no biblical reasons, that doesn't matter. The old is gone, the new has come. But but Christians, this is a scoop, spoiler alert. I know a lot of Christians who don't really do what God says. I know that's shocking. But they do what they want to do. And unless they deal with their own sin, 
then they're going to carry that sin into the next relationship. So it's very important that we understand that. So uh, the, the reality is our hearts are hard. Our hearts can get selfish. We want what we want when we want it. And um, a lot of people do get remarried without a biblical warrant to do so. And usually, Sumi, that requires uh, a whole bunch of marriage counseling and broken hearts. And by that, I mean uh, hearts broken before God to repent. You know, 60% of all second marriages, 70%, almost just under 70% of all third marriages among Christians fail. That's because they're unwilling to deal with the sin that got him in that position in the first place. So yes, you can be remarried. Just be sure you're doing it God's way. That's always the best way. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Juan from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm conflicted. I know we shouldn't lie, but there are a few stories that people lied in the Bible for God's purpose. When Abram and Sarai lied to Pharaoh and Rahab lied for the spies, what can we make of this? Is it like saying white lies to our children to protect them? Is it okay to lie for protection? Okay, one. Now, one of the things, and, and, and Rahab in particular, always gets brought up in this question about is it okay to lie well she lied and she's in the hall of fame of faith uh, abraham lied and he's in the, the 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 hall of fame of faith and we think well if it's okay for them it must be okay for us both of those people lied because their faith was weak rahab wasn't even a jew and all she knew about god was that he really was god and he'd been delivering um, um, Israel and, and, and she knew that they were doomed. She knew that God's people were going to prevail. But now she's in a situation, you know, we, we call this lying for the greater good. She didn't know God well enough to trust him, so she did what we humans do. She was in her flesh. I can also tell you, uh, I've done both of the studies, both with uh, Pharaoh and Abimelech and uh, Abraham's lies. Um, those were lies of his flesh. And one, what we have to do is understand it's never okay to lie. Jesus said the devil is the father of lies. When we're lying, he's our dad. Think about that for a moment. Is it ever okay to lie? I don't have anybody on the phone. The phones have been quiet, so I'd love, love some phone calls. You guys are always more interesting than me. But let me tell a quick story. The angriest I ever have been at Paula. Now, this is before I was saved. The angriest I've ever been was when she wouldn't lie for me. Um, my ex-business partner was calling me. I didn't want to talk to him. He had done me terribly wrong. And I just, I didn't want to talk to him. And Paula's a, a believer. And um, um, she put her hand on the phone and she said, um, uh, it's for you. And she took, said his name. And I said, I'm not here. Tell him I'm not here. And, you know, she'd been going along with it for a while. And finally, she was convicted by the Holy Spirit. I can't tell lies. And I remember the look on her face. She was she was scared. And she, she, she said, um, here he is. And she handed me the phone because she knew I was angry. And I went off on her. I mean, I just I said, how could you not do this? How could you not take my side? How could you not protect me? All I told you to do, this is no big deal. Uh, but she so, she took a stand for Jesus. It's those kind of stands one that led me to a faith in Jesus Christ. She just wouldn't lie anymore. As Christians, we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't tell our kids there's a Santa Claus. That's a lie. There are things that we can say, well, maybe we ought not to talk about that. But to lie willfully, there's never an excuse for. And it's never generated by the Spirit of God, not ever, not once. And because other people in the Bible and people throughout history, um, I listened to Corey Ten Boom one time, and she's talking about life in, in, in the uh, uh, concentration camp. 
uh, during World War II. Um, and she was talking about the lies that had to be told. Um, but she never for a moment tried to justify those lies. All lies are a result of weak faith. So I don't think, one, we should be conflicted at all. We need to tell the truth. We need to tell the truth in love. And sometimes because of love, we simply choose not to say anything. It's that simple. So I don't think uh, we're setting an example for our children. That's the example that you gave. Um, and there's no such thing as a white lie. Every lie is is just a different shade of black. So I hope that makes sense to you. And there are times when you're going to be under the gun, your faith is going to fail, and you're going to lie. But then what you've got to do is you've got to repent. God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. One more quick, very quick story. I had a guy, again, this is after I was saved, um, a bookie that I owed a lot of money to. And he was following me around, and things were getting pretty threatening. And I kept lying to him over and over and over and over. And at one point, God really, really dealt with me on it. And I had to make the decision, okay, you know, this guy may kill me, but I can't tell one more lie. I can't bring this kind of grief to Jesus. So I asked the Lord to protect me, but but I purpose in my heart, the next time I saw him or the next time he called, I was going to tell him the truth, knowing that that would get me in a lot of trouble. Uh, and when I told him the truth, God showed off in such a way that I've never forgotten it. I never will forget it because it demonstrated that God really is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? And I didn't even know that verse in Romans when this happened. So one, no lies. White, there, there's no such thing as a white lie. Uh, in the same way, there should be no such thing as a lie that comes from the mouth of a Christian. Here is a question from Trey. He says, how long does it take for bad habits to change after getting saved? I curse a lot still. Um, Trey, bad habits have to be broken. You know, Jesus said, if your if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, gouge it out. Well, my grandma would say, if you curse, wash your mouth out with soap and do it enough that you won't want to curse anymore. This is just something that you've got to decide. You're in charge of this. So bad words are going to come to mind, but they don't have to come out of your mouth. And you need to realize that when you are using filthy language, um, Jesus is heartbroken. That's a sin against God. That's sin prevents you from being able to pray effectively. That sin prevents you from being able to hear the voice of God, the will of God. Is it worth it? I once heard a guy say to me, um, uh, I used to be really obese, many, many, before I got saved. And um, um, I had a guy tell me, never drink your calories. If you're going to watch your calories, I tried every diet known to man. Um, if you're going to drink your calories, or, you know, that's just wasteful. So so drink water with your meals and don't drink your calories. It's amazing what a difference that made. It just made sense to me. Well, the same thing is true for your bad habit of cursing. Is it worth it not to have your prayers heard? Is it worth it to know that that sin makes Jesus cringe? That that sin of a foul mouth was one of the reasons Jesus was beaten and nails were hammered to his hands and feet why he was mocked and insulted is it worth it to know that I mean how would you explain that to Jesus Trey I'll tell you this uh, I before I was uh, saved I was a baseball player um, wanted to play professional baseball uh, played college and didn't make it so uh, that didn't work out then I went in the car business and believe me, in both of those places, filthy language was commonplace. And I I just, the filthiest stuff came out of my mouth you can imagine. I didn't even give it a second thought. Uh, in 31 years since I'd been saved, I've cursed one time. One time it just came out of my mouth. 
And I was so embarrassed. It happened at Bible college, actually. And there was a young man who was asking me for some counsel. And um, I was talking to him. And, and the curse word just flowed. You should have seen the look on his face. Well, I was so embarrassed. I, I, I asked him to forgive me. I repented before the Lord. And Jesus gave me a picture that has never left me. And it changed my life. Um, that picture was he was standing between me and the person that I was talking to. And before that ugly word ever got to the ears of the person that I was talked to, that, that ugly word washed over Jesus first. And my holy God, who loved me enough to die for my sins, who gave me his perfection in exchange for my filth, that word polluted him. I did it to him. And there was never an excuse now, for a long time, ugly words came to my mind because they were in there. They're in my heart. Jesus said, whatever comes out of a man's mouth, its source was the heart of that man. And so I would pray, Lord, I've got that filth in my heart, but I can't let it get out of my mouth and embarrass you. So somehow stop it in that process. And he really did. And then in the process, my heart got cleaned up too. So Trey, fight it with all of your heart. It shouldn't take too long. We've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I'm laughing at myself because I'm thinking during the break that two minutes went really, really fast. And I probably told too many stories already in the first half of this program. So I'm sorry if I've lost any of you because of my stories. Here's a question from eight-year-old Billy. He says, will God forgive the devil if he asked? Um, Billy, the answer is no. Two things that we need to know. First, angels, and Lucifer is a fallen angel. Uh, angels have a different guideline than you and I do. We can repent and ask God to forgive us, and we know that he will keep forgiving us over and over and over and over. Not so with angels. Now, you might wonder why. Well, these angels, especially Lucifer, who turned into Satan or the devil, um, they, they enjoyed the presence of God. Jesus says, too much is given, much more is required. Uh, they are really accountable. And, and angels, instead of getting a chance to repent every day, angels, because of their responsibility, because they were accountable to God, they had a one-time-only choice. Satan rebelled. Uh, he caused a third of the angels in heaven to fall with him. They had one time choice, uh, no no turning back. They made the choice, and they can't ever, ever go back. So that's just the way it is in heaven. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to know, Billy, is that God knows everything, and God knows that Satan has no desire to be forgiven. Satan doesn't think he's done anything wrong. Satan is doing what he does, and, and that's trying to control and destroy and, and uh, rebel against God. And so God knows that the devil would never ask, and uh, he's past the point of no return. So, Billy, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, the answer is no. He will never ask, but even if he did, uh, his choice, and, and they knew when they made that choice. The, the fallen angels did, that it was a once-forever choice. Good question. Thank you. Jaden wants to know about a DNR directive. Are they okay with God? Um, Jaden, the Bible doesn't really cover this. Life is in the hands of God. And, uh, you know, we, we always struggle with this, especially if it's loved ones and they're on life support. 
when the doctors tell you that there's almost no hope, or in many cases, no hope at all, they're brain dead. Um, And, um, um, you know, there's a lot of guilt associated with uh, having to make that decision. I remember when my mother died, um, we had to make that decision. Um, I was a young adult, but uh, we had to make that decision. Um, so, um, yeah, I think DNR directives that do not resuscitate are okay with God. Uh, I've always viewed them, Jaden, as, God, you're in charge of life and death. And so without any extra steps to preserve life or prolong life, uh, we're leaving the life of our loved one in your hands. And if this is uh, Jaden for you, um, um, uh, a DNR directive. I, I, you know, if I get to the point where they tell me, they tell Paul I'm not coming back, uh, I don't want extraordinary measures to be taken. Um, I want to be with Jesus. I, Paul and I, we tease with each other about this stuff. By the way, that's what happens when you get to be 70 and 71. Um, when when um, um, I, I told her that, that, that if she brings me back from heaven, I'm going to be really upset. So, yeah, I just think, Jane, that's leaving it in the hands of God rather than the hands of doctors, um, rather than being on life support for an interminable time. I just think it's one of those things where uh, we say, okay, Lord, this is this is you. I don't want to be here one minute longer than he wants me to be here. And when it is time for me to go to be with Jesus, now, I don't want to die. But when it's time, uh, I, I want to be ushered into his presence in an instant. So, um, yeah, I'm sure DNR directives are just fine with the Lord. I actually think it is an act of faith. I think a lot of times our families keep people on uh, life support um, because of guilt or just, you know, uh, hope, but it's a false hope. Um, and, And I'm not sure those things are healthy. So I hope that helps. Here is... Paulo, uh, P-A-U-L-O, he says, I know Israel is God's people, but why did God ever choose one group instead of everyone? Um, Boy, that's a great question, Paulo. I've never heard it uh, asked like that. Um, Whenever we ask God why he did something, uh, we're looking for human reasoning uh, to an infinitely greater mind. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts beyond our thoughts. God had a plan, and, and we know that choosing Israel was um, part of this unbelievable plan to eventually bring salvation to people uh, like you and me, Paolo. So um, uh, he chose them. We know uh, the basis of his choice. We know that from 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. Um, the despised things, even the things that are not. Uh, Israel wasn't uh, the the smartest people, the strongest people. Certainly they weren't spiritual people. Um, Israel uh, began with one man, um, Abraham. He became the father of the Jewish faith. Um, but, but his descendants were idol worshipers. He was an idol worshiper. Um, but God chose them. And the basis of God's choice, we know from the New Testament scriptures, he chose on the basis of his foreknowledge. And he chose Abraham because he knew Abraham would, would love him. Abraham would obey him. And so Abraham, out of him came the people of Israel. Um, remember, I'm not talking about individual Jews, but the nation Israel. And God chose them. He didn't choose any others because they weren't looking for him. Now, this is a hard thing to to explain, but we know that there was something in Abraham's heart that um, was longing for God. Now, again, this is my opinion, Paolo, but uh, as an idol worshiper, um, Abraham would have made many of the idols that he worshipped day after day. He would go offer sacrifices uh, or offerings uh, to those idols. Uh, typically in the ancient world, they would have a separate house where all of the idols uh, were were kept. And he would go into that room to worship God, whatever he knew about God. 
And um, uh, at some point, there was just this longing in his heart. Again, I believe created by God himself. But this longing in his heart saying, wait a minute, this this doesn't make sense. I made these idols, and now I'm worshiping them. I'm making offerings to them. And I'll put it in contemporary language. Paolo, I think he one day just got fed up and said, "This, there's got to be more than this. And he walked outside, and that more called him by name. And Abraham was chosen. And Israel, God's people, subsequently chosen because they are his descendants. Good question, Paolo. Thank you very, very much. Always remember, when it comes to God's election, it's always made on the basis of what he knows about people, or in some cases, people groups. Well, here's a question that kind of fits in from Bridget. She says, I get confused by election. Can you help me understand? Um, Bridget, what I just said to Paolo, um, God chooses us because he knows, because he knows everything, he knows that we're going to choose him. You know, when Paula started praying for me 13 years before I got saved, God told her to hang in there, not because I was worth hanging in there for, but he told her to hang in there because he knew that there was going to be a day in February of 1991 where I was going to choose him back. And God was simply telling Paul to hang in there. You love him for me, and I'm at work. And so I was chosen by God. My pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, used to say all the time, he said, you know, when we get to heaven, it's like uh, there's going to be a gate and um, on the one side of the gate there's going to be a sign that says enter of your own free will. And then when we get through the gate, we're going to look back at the other side of that gate and there's going to be a sign that says chosen by God. So those things don't have to be uh, at tension or at odds with one another. God chooses those he knows are going to choose him. And because he knows everything, he knows exactly when that's going to be. So uh, God has died for the sins of the whole world. But Paul writing to Timothy says, but especially for those who are being saved. In other words, his gift of eternal life is only effective for those who are going to choose him back. And it's true, Bridget, that you're chosen by God. I'm chosen by God. And all we have to do to, to, to validate our being chosen by God is to choose him back. And we're going to see just how smart God was, how patient God was. So we don't, don't, don't need to get confused by election. Election doesn't mean God makes some people get saved and he makes others not get saved. It doesn't mean that at all. And sadly, there is a whole systematic theologies built around um, God does what God does and nobody can question him. It, it's, it, it can't be that. That's inconsistent with his character, with his nature. So God chooses us. Romans eight twenty nine. 1 Peter chapter 1, the first two verses, um, say that the, the basis of that choice is God's foreknowledge. Romans 8.29 is especially meaningful for me because my paraphrase of that is, God chose me even when I was doing everything in my power to make him change his mind. Because God knows the end from the beginning he refused to have his mind changed even by my rebellion against him. So, Bridget, election is a wonderful doctrine. Predestination, election, whatever you want to call it. It's a wonderful doctrine. It ought to comfort us as almost no other doctrine does. And don't be swayed by the distortions of election. God doesn't cause anything. God simply knows everything that's going to happen. And again, I want to emphasize, I am so grateful that God waited all those years for me because, frankly, Bridget, I wouldn't have waited for me. I wouldn't have chosen me. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We've got a question now from Jack. Uh, he says, I know Jesus was a human, but is he still human in heaven? Yeah, Jack, he is forever the God-man. That's the theological term. 100% man, 100% God. 
Um, you know, to us, that's like 200 uh, percent, but it's not Jesus. When he became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us in his incarnation. He took forever the limitations of humanity on him. Uh, we we can't imagine what he was like before his incarnation. You know, I always think about him directing the stars uh, in the sky where they can go so as not to crash into one another, uh, holding the planets in place. Uh, um, um, Paul writes, um, John also says he's holding all things together. That's what he's, but, but what did he look like? He wasn't the God-man in eternity past. He took that on as incarnation. One minute he's accepting the worship of angels. The next minute he's in the womb of a teenage girl being born in a stable, a manger, in abject poverty. Certainly not the dramatic entrance that you would expect of God. But he became a man and he accepted those limitations. And even now, the limitation of being human, he's still bearing the consequences of that as he is submitted eternally to the will of his Father. Now, that's not a problem for Jesus because he and the Father are one. But um, Jesus is always subservient to the Father in heaven. And he will be throughout the history of the world, just like the Holy Spirit is subservient to Jesus and to the the Father. It doesn't mean that uh, Jesus or the Holy Spirit are any less. They're both fully God. It just means that this was a choice that Jesus made in heaven. By the way, one other thing, Jack, in his humanity, Jesus still bears the scars in heaven of his crucifixion. There before me was a lamb looking as though he had been slain. Jesus is the only, this is a silly word to use, but he's the only handicapped person in heaven. And yet he's Almighty God, so he's not handicapped at all. But he will bear those scars, and every time that we look at him in heaven, those grotesque star, scars, the, 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 the nail prints in his hand and feet, will be an everlasting reminder of just how much he loves us. I got a picture in my office here, Jack, of of, uh, of the um, wedding banquet. And there's a guy outside the door. The wedding banquet door is open just a little bit. And you can see this glorious light coming from inside. You can see activity in the background. And this guy is on his knees, just sort of in regular clothes, but he's on his knees. And Jesus is bidding him to come into the wedding banquet. And he and he's looking up at Jesus saying, me? Well, when we look at those scars, that's what we're going to say. We're going to look at you. You did that for me? And Jesus will say, yeah, you read it. For the joy set before me, I endured the agony of the cross. Think about that, Jack. So, yeah, he was a human and he accepted humanity and he is a human forever and ever. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Terry. Are altar calls found in the Bible? I'm not sure why we do them. Um, You know, altar calls are sort of cultural the way we do it. But invitations um, to, to come to Christ are, uh, are, are commonplace throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. Choose this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. Invitations like that are found throughout the Scripture. An altar call is simply an invitation to receive Jesus Christ. Now, Terry, a couple of things. One, I'm, uh, uh, I've am i been personally convicted by the Lord, and this is just me. Um, I am never to preach a message at church and not give an invitation. On Wednesday nights, it's a smaller crowd, pretty casual, uh, we don't ask people to make a public profession other than raising their hand. Uh, on Friday nights, we have people coming up for prayer, and we got the people praying for them uh, are going to ask them if they're Christians and, and be able to lead them to accept Christ. On Sundays, I always ask people to be brave and come forward. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, invitations are very, very biblical. That's why we do them. 
Uh, and, and, you know, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. So this idea of invitations is very important and is very grounded in uh, biblical theology. Uh, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, it's simply a public profession of Jesus Christ by faith. In the um, um, New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts, uh, we see their public profession uh, in the act of baptism, in the obedient act of baptism. Uh, that was the public profession. Jews were very familiar. Remember, the, the church was entirely Jewish for many years. Um, Jews understood what baptism was all about. It was a baptism of repentance and what John's baptism was. But it was public. And and the, the, the Christians in the New Testament church, they continued the idea of public baptisms as their way of publicly proclaiming Christ. We ask people to come forward in church. And uh, for m- those of us, and it's most churches don't have baptismals, um, we don't take them right in the water and baptize them. Uh, we, we typically will baptize in, in, in different times and different locations. Uh, but the public profession, uh, walking an aisle, giving your heart to Jesus, uh, it's very, very biblical. Thank you for the question. Timothy says, my question is about Paul's gospel and Jesus' gospel. Are they different gospels? That's what a friend from church keeps saying, that Jesus is love and Paul is concerned only with behavior. Timothy, um, uh, this friend is not doing you any favors. Um, um, Paul's gospel and Jesus' gospel, there is absolutely uh, no conflict between the two. Uh, the Apostle Paul um, is used by the Holy Spirit to bring us the information. Jesus said to his disciples, I have more to tell you, much more than you can now bear. Uh, but when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, uh, then there'll be more. Well, Paul is the one who wrote most of that information. And we need to know how to live our lives in order to please the Lord. So there's no difference at all in the Gospels, and uh, your friend is being duped. There is a movement online in particular, but it's going through the churches as well, that says, you know, it's only what Jesus said that matters. And the Apostle Paul, you know, he was a homophobe, or he was anti-woman, or he was he was a legalist, all those things. Not true at all. The Apostle Paul and Jesus, no conflict at all. In fact, our Bible says that Jesus um, taught Paul that gospel personally in his three years in the Arabian wilderness. Hey, we got time for a call. We got Mike on line one from San Antonio. Mike, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hello, Pastor Ron. Uh, can you hear me okay? I'm, I can hear you fine, Mike. Yes, sir. I was listening to your show on Spotify July 1st. I think it was a mom called and was asking about her daughter getting baptized, but she was maybe living in an alternative lifestyle, and you elaborated about wondering if she was truly saved. And I and I will not challenge you, Pastor, because I know you know your Bible, and you know it very well. And, and, and I've read my Bible several times, and, and I know I've called before, and I've talked about Romans 7. And I guess what I want to talk about is... When someone gets converted, they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you mentioned on the July 1st show that you will live for Christ and you will you cannot live a certain lifestyle. I, I understand that on, on a level, of course. But I want to talk about, well, how does, that, how does that work with sanctification and the process of being sanctified? Like, let's use the homosexual example. If someone truly understands that homosexuality is wrong, and I've met many friends that have struggled with this, and mm-hmm. they, and I'm not saying it's going to stop immediately, though God can do that, and they continue to struggle, I, I, I potentially, I, I'm, I'm a little conflicted with, with what I heard on July 1st, yeah. and then I'm going back to Romans 7, and people are, are, are arguing that Paul wasn't saved, I believe he was saved, but I'll shut oh, up yeah. and listen. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And I'll have to do this quickly. But, but, the, but the difference here is intent. 
people who willfully sin, you know, I always tell people, as long as they're struggling, they're probably in a pretty good place. That's the Spirit of God convicting them, and they're probably in a good place. Um, but, but remember, when upon conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And, and the Holy Spirit is holy. He's God. And that means when you sin, you've got to recognize that this is a sin against God. Now, again, I understand the struggle with our flesh. Romans chapter 7, Paul depicts that struggle. It's, it's autobiographical, um, but, but this is his life as a Christian. To, 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 uh, to say that Paul wasn't even saved because he struggled like that is nonsense. Um, Paul is simply talking about the, f- the struggle we have with the flesh. Um, when I said that this woman, uh, in response to her, she, her daughter's living in an alternative lifestyle, um, the one thing in order to get saved is you've got to repent of sin. And so you can't come to Jesus and say, well, I'm living with a woman that I'm not married or a woman that I, I shouldn't be with. We're, we're in a sexual relationship. Um, you, you, you're not saved if you don't repent of that. And so you, then you've got to do something to demonstrate that there really has been a change of ownership in your body. That does not mean that we're not going to struggle. And, and whenever the Bible says, Galatians chapter 5, Romans chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mike, those are willful, continual sins. Again, when somebody falls back into the relationship, and we've had many, many people do that, um, they fall back in uh, and they're repentant again, uh, it's not an eternal punishment because they slipped, they sinned, but they got to confess their sin and they get okay, Lord, help me not to do this again. But the man or the woman that says, I can keep doing this, that's a heart that is not regenerated. And that was the context of that study. Mike, thanks for the question. I always appreciate your calls. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I will be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com. <laughs> 